The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everyone. My name is Jeff Bishop. I'm a board member of ACB Diabetics in Action, and we're here for our last session for ACBDA here at the uh, annual convention of ACB. And boy, do we have quite a uh, round of guests here to talk with all of you and to you know really uh, elevate the conversation around just uplifting everyone and sharing testimonies about people's journey with diabetes and just just sharing great stories and uh, you know giving people a, a much more enriching understanding of how people are are living with diabetes and being able to achieve more and empower themselves and advocate for themselves. Before I do that, we have our uh, president here, Tom Tobin. Hey, Tom. But uh, Tom is out there lurking, and I think Becky's here with us and uh, a number of other officers. Uh, I want to give a warm uh, welcome to Randy. And uh, please, everyone, uh, we won't go into any detail here, but please, everyone, pray for Randy. Um, and we'll, we won't say any more than, or more than that, but uh, Randy, we love you. And... Um, we, we care about you very, very much, and we're sending lots of good energy your way. So if uh, all of you uh, can, can do that on Randy's behalf, that would be very much sincerely appreciated. Jeff, yes. this is Monica. I am so sorry. I forgot to give the opening CEU code. You know what? I forgot too. You know, you can blame me. <laughs> Why don't we uh, go ahead and do that now? Yes, and I do have one at the end, and I won't forget. <laughs> okay, I won't forget either. Okay. Sorry, everyone. The opening CEU code is 31542. Again, it's 31542. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. Sorry about that. All right. Now, we have four testimonies today that we're going to hear. First, we're going to hear from Veronica, and then we're going to hear from Teresa, and then Liz, and then Sugar is going to wrap us up as far as her testimony and, and her journey with diabetes. So uh, that's the plan for today. And if we have time, we'll, we'll take some, some comments or uh, questions from the audience if we have time, but uh, we may not. So let's start it off with Veronica, who has just an amazing story to tell. I, I know a little bit about her journey. So Veronica, welcome. Well, hi, everybody. I'm Veronica Elzey, and I'm really happy to get the, the fun of telling my story and sharing it with you, And because uh, I think it's important to share with each other. So I'm a little bit backwards. Um, I was blind long before I was diagnosed with diabetes. I have an identical twin, and we decided that it was much cooler to be born in October than at Christmas time. So I was blind before we left the incubator from, I guess now they call it retinopathy of prematurity. Um, so the, the good thing about it is that I came from a family that really encouraged us and gave us lots of practice at figuring things out and advocating for ourselves and would kick our butts and just let us get in trouble. I mean, we staged a sit-in when we were three. Um, when I was five, I decided I wanted to run away from home. So I 
kind of snatched my dad's horse and took off through the neighborhood. That went over real big. And yes, I did get spanked. <laughs> um, but that I, you know, I was allowed to grow up and be ornery and it's really turning out to serve me very well. And when I started getting interested in a career, I wanted to be a symphony musician and a composer. And most orchestras, you have conductors with big egos. They really didn't want me. So what do I have to do to fit in? I have to either make myself indispensable, be 10 times better than everybody else, and work my butt off. So I taught myself to read print music using an Opticon, for those of you that have been around long enough to have known the Opticon. And I got a music typewriter. And I had to do all that behind the scenes without anybody knowing all the extra stuff I had to do. What mattered is that my bow went the same direction everybody else's did, or I'd be on probation. So I kind of learned this habit of being terrified of failure and not measuring up because I was going to get kicked out if I did and really learning how to just do what I needed to do in order to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. So at the age of 34 is when I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And it was after a really serious injury where I lost the use of my hands actually for several years had to learn it all over, and the pain was just horrible. And the whole stress of the injury just sent my system into a tailspin. And there I was, type 1 diabetes. And the weird part about it is it was quite a snafu at the hospital because when I went in for surgery, they saw that my blood sugar was high, and they just kind of made the assumption, oh, she's blind, she's just an out-of-control diabetic, so nobody said anything. There was no diabetes in my family. I knew nothing about it. So it was not until I had a whole weekend I don't remember and kept singing apparently about taking the bus to the kitchen um, that they finally decided something's really wrong. And I remember lying in that hospital, having no idea what I was getting into, thinking at least there's a lot of blind people that are diabetic, so I won't have to invent everything. I kind of got a big surprise when I got out and I didn't have any connections with anybody and I just had to kind of figure it out and I would go to these support groups and I struggled with denial. Uh, they talked about me a lot in the last seminar. Um, I went through the denial. Everybody else has taken more insulin than I am. Maybe I'm not really a diabetic. So I'd stop everything for a day. Oops, that didn't work out so well. Um, but just trying to figure out how to do the finger sticks, and Jeff called it right again last hour, I I struggled with it, and the meters back then were just a little goofy. And so my husband would read magazines to me, and that's how I would learn stuff. So he would read me diabetes forecasts. This was in the 80s. And um, on the back of that magazine, they had a column called Reflections where people would write in and tell their stories. And this woman wrote in and she told about her six-year-old daughter named Hannah. And Hannah had learned how to tell the teacher what she needed and do all this stuff at school. And because finger sticks were so easy, my gosh, even a moron could do it. And I tell you, I sunk somewhere below ground at that point. Like, God, I'm worse than a moron. And that little failure gremlin just went bing. 
and I'm worse than a moron. I can't do this. I don't even have anybody to ask. I don't know anybody. And I was having trouble. My A1C was horrible. I was turning out to be slightly allergic to some insulins. And so I finally went, okay, what am I going to do? So I shopped around. I went through 10 endocrinologists before I found one that said, yeah, we'll put you on a pump. And so I started an insulin pump in 1991. And it was then that I got training on carb counting. And I discovered one of my favorite toys, which was plastic food. I don't know if any of you have seen them, but they are so cool. You have like, here's the size of a bunch of grapes. It's 15 grams of carbs. Here's what a three ounce piece of meat feels like. And I fell in love with this plastic food. ACBDA, everyone wants to make a whole bunch of money off me. Just raffle off a package of plastic food. I'm there because I just it was so fun. Um, and so I started learning all these things and I cut my insulin dosage in half. It gave me back my freedom because I could decide at the spur of the moment that I wanted to go out and get something to eat or I run into a friend, hey, let's go have coffee. And it just changed my life. I still had the testing bugaboo. And what I found is that the first thing I had to do when I wanted to pump was to convince these companies, please don't require us to have a sighted spouse in order to have an insulin pump. Because what if my spouse dies? And that's a line I still use today, just because it really shakes them up enough to hear me. And so I succeeded there. And I continued to try to work with them because I knew things were going to change. And it was, in a way, beginning that advocacy that kind of redeemed me because I could get out of my own sense of, oh, God, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to fail. And I went through kind of that blame thing from people around me. And, you know, and I just so it kind of got me out of myself. And but what I realized as I was doing that is I'd go to my own doctor's and there were two extremes. I'm sure all of you have seen them. Either got, well, just have your husband do it for you. Um, even the people at TCOYD said that to me the first time I talked to them. Um, have your husband do it for you. Or it was, oh my God, you're such an inspiration. You're the first person I've ever met that had an insulin pump and you're doing so well. Yeah, but can you answer my question? And it was like, everything was about blindness and I couldn't really get the help I wanted when it came to actual diabetes questions. And then technology began to change and things became more with touch screens and things like that. And I would call these companies and I'd hang up in tears. And I kept decided to keep an index card here by my phone. It's still here. And I brailed two words on this index card and it said, you matter. And it was the thing that kept me from giving up when I'd be on the phone with everyone, well, they'll come out with something eventually. And, you know, and I'd go to these conferences like TCOYD and they'd be showing off all the latest goodies and because type one stuff was all about technology. And I'd walk out of those meetings in tears going, well, for everybody but me. And so at one point, you know, I had a day when I was having a good pity party and I've thrown a couple of good ones. Um, when I sat down and I went into my recording studio and that's when I recorded my album. Because again, it took me out of my stuff. It allowed me to say things that I didn't have the nerve to say. I mean, I'd gone through, it probably took me 10 years before I would 
eat in front of another diabetic because I was sure they were all perfect and eating all the right things and they were going to think I ate wrong and I was going to get, you know, judged and, you know, and I'm really good at that. I'm an expert. Um, so that really helped me. And I met a lot of other people that were having kind of some of the same issues. And I've learned that to advocate sometimes what was best for me was to be vulnerable and to really be honest and to really, so when they were going to discontinue my beloved Cosmo pump and I couldn't find anything accessible, I kept working my way up the company and I cried on the phone for an hour to the president of the company. There's nothing else there. What am I going to do? Because I just thought it was over. And I got the very last Cosmo pump and I used it eight years after it supposedly didn't exist anymore because I had so much accessibility with it. Now I'm using the Omnipod, which is a tubeless pump. And I started it in 2018. I started the Dexcom in 2016. Um, and to use the Omnipod, my husband made me a little gadget to hold things together and a little stand so that I could position the, um, it's a remote control that you use to run it, position it so seeing AI can read the pump. So I have all this stuff. Um and, you know, as it gets more advanced, but I'm able to get it done, I'm able to have my insulin on board and, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, but that failure gremlin kind of pops out still once in a while. And I'm still, you know, oh God, everybody else is getting this right and everybody else. And so I'm having some issues with some of the pods and every once in a while in the middle of, you know, these holy terror moments, I just have to bust up laughing at some of the trouble I get into. And some of you probably have been using SkinTac for a long time to hold down your Dexcom devices or whatever. I hadn't because I hadn't needed it, but starting to try it. And it was a few weeks ago and I, I didn't know whether to put the SkinTac on my body and then put the pod up against it. The pod is what contains my insulin or to put the SkinTac on the back of the pod. So I had talked to a couple of people in this group and found out what others did. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put the pod on my abdomen and I'm going to put the skin tack on my body and then stick the pod to it. But it's kind of hard to predict exactly where that pod's going to land. So here's a picture. I put the skin tack on my lower abdomen, okay, lower left abdomen. And then I peel the adhesive backing off the pod and I reach over to, th to do the skin tack on me. I do it. And I reached over to throw the skin tack wipe away. Okay, what happens? You kind of lean forward. All of a sudden, I stuck my leg to my abdomen. And I do mean really stuck. And, so, and then I started to laugh. And what happens when you laugh? You move your body. It got even worse. It took me... I'd say more than 24 hours to completely disconnect my leg from my abdomen because I didn't want to put any alcohol or anything near where the pod was or I'd unstick it and there would go 100 units of insulin. And so, you know, it's one of those things I'm probably going to laugh about forever. And it's like, hey, I beat the failure gremlin. Everybody else might be able to do it first try, but I made a good story out of it. And the other thing that I've done is I'm participating on the Accessible Insulin Pump Task Force, which is 
kind of um, made up from people from ACB, NFB, and CNIB. And we are going after all of these companies to try to show them that we deserve this. Uh, and I'm still waving that card around. We matter. We matter. And there are times when I see real progress. There are times when I get absolutely exhausted. Nothing's ever going to happen in my lifetime. How do I keep this up? How do we sustain this? How do we keep it going? And then I realized again, it's about getting vulnerable, seeing, letting them see what we are, who we are, and that it's really important for us to get together, share our stories, let them hear our stories, and kind of help guide them away from thinking liability and thinking accessibility. So that's how I'm doing it. Thank you so much. Very, very good. And uh, I have I, I have questions for you, um, Veronica, but uh, yeah. but in the interest of time, we won't do it now. Okay. But, uh, I think everybody has questions uh, for, for you. So we're going to have to, if we don't have time for, for questions for everybody, we're going to have to bring all four of you back in you know one of our community events and really dive deeper into your stories because i think they're all really compelling and uh just just amazing um i learned a little bit more about you today too so this is this is good <laughs> love it love it oh thank you okay and and uh, you need to tell us where to get your album so okay laurelcreekmusic.com <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay okay there you go there you go okay all right Teresa, you're up all right. Um, hi, I'm Teresa. Um, my journey started with diabetes back in 2011. Um, my mother had um, been diagnosed with a brain tumor and um, I needed, and she was going to have her surgery in January and I needed to spend time with her before the surgery. I just had to. And I went up to Michigan to spend some time with her, help her get her house in order. And um, I was under a lot of stress and I was falling apart everywhere, every which way. I was scared to death I was going to lose my mother. And it, they ended up having to cancel the surgery and reschedule it and everything. So I went up there and then relief. Okay, I didn't have to be up there and I could go back home and maybe come back later when she was actually going to have the surgery. Um, I was home for two weeks and on Super Bowl Sunday, <laughs> I actually um, took myself to the emergency room because I had a horrible yeast infection. And I just could not take it and had to go see the doctors. And the doctor there was like, oh, this is usually this bad of infection is related to diabetes. And I'm like, well, I'm not a diabetic. And she's like, are you pre-diabetic? No, I've never been told anything like that. She said, well, let's just check your sugar and find out what it is. And it came back at 11.7. And she's like, you're a diabetic. You need to go see your primary doctor tomorrow. I said, okay. So I went to my primary doctor. And she says, yeah, you're a diabetic. 
And I tried to ask questions, but she kind of just blew me off and said, here's metformin, take it once a day. And, you know, that was it. I got no kind of information, no meter to read my sugar levels. Um, I got nothing. So I, I Googled <laughs> and that's how I found out and learned what I know about diabetes was I used Google and just read a bunch of information. Um, then I would say my, my A1C after that, it was averaging between a seven and a 7.5. Um, it would go up and down here and there. Um, I ended up having to get rid of that doctor because I felt like she just didn't care. She wasn't doing anything to help me along the journey or anything. And so I tried another primary physician and he seemed right on the ball. He wanted to know everything, got me on medications and just took control of it. So we kept my sugar pretty much under control for a while, um, for like seven years. <laughs> and then, um, 2018, that's when I found out that I was starting to have problems with my eyes. And I went to an optometrist and he says, because I, I was having problems reading the words on, on the screen of a TV. And so I thought I just needed a new prescription change. And he's like, no, your prescription didn't change. And you need to go see an optometrist because something else is going on. So I went and seen the optometrist and they said, oh, it looks like you have a macula hole. Um, go see a retina specialist. So I went to see him and he says, I think I know what's going on, but we're going to send you to the National Institute of Health for diagnosis. Well, that scared me half to death um, because NIH, that's the big deal. And um, they put me through all sorts of testing. And it come back that I have, it's called macular telelangtasia 2. They call it MACTEL2 for short. Um, it works kind of like macular degeneration. So I'm losing my center vision, but my peripheral vision is okay. Um, I have problems with depth perception. I have... Um, Lots of problems seeing things directly. I have problems reading. And um, whenever I look directly at something, it disappears. So like faces turn into just a, like a, a scare mask where the eyes are pulled down and the, there's no nose or it's pulled down and, and misshapen and, or there's just nothing there at all. Um, and then my brain kind of tries to fill in the missing pieces, like, um, a mailbox will look like a dog sitting on the side of the road or the one that got everybody laughing at me at work was, um, uh, there was something hanging in the steel in the back room. And I started screaming because I thought there was a rack and I'm I don't like mice and rats. <laughs> and I started screaming and 
Next thing I know, people are running over to find out what's happening. And it ended up being a banana peel. And um, 2019, they told me it was going to be a slow progressive disease. Well, within a year, they said that I was legally blind. And oh my gosh, that just flipped my world upside down. And I realized that with sugar levels and everything like that, me and stress do not get along. It blows my sugar way out of whack. Um, My biggest number I've ever had was a 15. um, And that was Christmas of 2011. That's when I lost my mother from the um, brain tumor. Um, and then, you know, after I found out that I was legally blind and my sugar levels were out of control again, and they were up in the 12s, the high 12s, I decided, okay, it's time for me to take off work. I need to get away from work. I need to get myself under control. Well, that didn't, that didn't happen that way. Um, (laughs) I ended up not going back to work. Um, I got on disability and um, still trying to get my numbers under control. And then, you know, COVID came around. That didn't help much. And so I got into my crafting a lot. Um, And my crafting, which is like crocheting and making um, handmade greeting cards and things like that actually led me to ACB. Um, I found ACB crafters on Facebook. And in 2021, I found ACBDA. I was looking for a place for a home for somewhere to make me feel like I belonged. And they've really helped me. Um, For the first year, I kind of just was very quiet and sat back and watched and listened and everything. Um, And then September 2021, this is where things started to go downhill again for me. Um, Because of COVID and everything that was going on, um, my kids had to move in with me. And which is nice. I mean, it's nice to have your kids around again, but my kids are, um, 35 and 33 and my youngest son has a son of his own. And then there's my oldest son that has a wife and a daughter. So they all moved in along with two more dogs and two birds. And then to top it off, I have my mother-in-law and my father-in-law living downstairs. So I don't know how anybody else is about living with their family members, but you put more than one woman in a household and we have problems. It just, I, I, it just kept escalating and escalating. She is from a different generation than I was. And so it, it just didn't mesh very well at all. And Within a year of living like this, my sugar went up to 12.7. And I had a 
a mental breakdown. And I hadn't been that bad since when I got diagnosed. And the only thing that pulled me out of after getting diagnosed of, of, I don't know how to put this. Um, I didn't think I would have a life after getting diagnosed with my eye condition. And I actually thought about ending things in. I just didn't want to be a handful for everybody. And I ended up, what pulled me out of it was I got a dog. <laughs> I got a little Yorkie that I knew that would get, make me get up and do things and take care of her. And maybe that would make me take care of myself. And she helped me through this next stage where I started to have another breakdown, but it just wasn't enough. And I um, started reaching out on ACBDA and um, that was right around the time that they started a program called peer mentor relations. And um, I got my first mentor and it, it started off well, but it ended up not being the right pairing for me. Um, so I was given another mentor and this mentor just, she changed my life and gave me the encouragement I needed to know and know that I was okay just the way I was, you know, and that I wasn't a burden to everybody and that it was okay. You know, I then got on a CGM, which that there was a big wake up call because, you know, none of my doctors had given me really a whole lot of information, what to look out for. I, I remember when I first got diagnosed, I, I knew that you could drink orange juice to help bring up your sugar levels. But nobody ever told me how much orange juice I could drink. So I had low sugar. It was down in the 60s. And so I drank one of those small containers of orange juice. I drank it all. <laughs> and found out that was a big no-no because next thing I knew, I was waking up in the bathroom stall, laid out on the floor with the fire department there trying to get me out. And um, <laughs> so I finally got paired up with the endocrinologist and he's been working with me. It took me a year to convince him to get me put on a CGM. And the only reason why I qualified for the CGM was because of my eyesight. Um, if I hadn't had been labeled legally blind, that um, I would never have been approved for it because of how much insulin I take and things like that. And um, once I got that, I started seeing, oh, yeah, brownies really do make your sugar levels go up, <laughs> you know, or get into a fight with my husband and watch my sugar rise up like a hundred points just from an argument. And 
you know, so I started testing myself and seeing, you know, what does this do? What does that do? And that really opened my eyes a lot to, to be able to control my sugars more. Um, I also switched over and stopped drinking sodas and things like that and drank only water. I decided to start making small changes um, instead of trying to go into it full force because I, I'm not that type of person to go cold turkey. And I was, I figured I would just be setting myself up for failure. So I wanted the little wins and those little wins matter a lot. And um, so every three months I go and get my A1C checked and every three months it's been coming down. And I am currently at a 7.2. Yay. <laughs> um, and I um, now we're working on my time and range. Boy, when I started wearing that CGM, it told me my time and range was like 14%, which is really bad. Now my time and range is 49% on the average of a two-week span. So it's getting better. So we're going to start working on that more. And um, we're adjusting my medication. I'm now starting to reduce my insulin. Um, and I, I see that it's going to continue to get better. But it's a lot of work. And you can get through it. But you will need the support of friends and family. Um, and uh, they can just help you get through so much. And without ACBDA, I don't think I would have gotten to where I am today. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Teresa. And, you know, we're all on a journey in, in, with, uh, with diabetes. And uh, we're all learning about how to manage this, manage this for ourselves. And we all need each other. We're a family. So thank you for sharing. Yes. Liz, you're up. All right. Um, I don't know how I can follow both of these ladies. I'm sitting here in tears. My goodness. I, I guess I will just start with my journey because um, that's where I was and that's where I am now. Um, let's go back to 1991. Um, I was six years old and in the first grade. And... Um, I remember I had been out of school for about a week because I had the flu and um, I went back to school. And over that next week, even though I wasn't testing positive for the flu any longer, I continued with all of these really bizarre symptoms of, you know, fatigue and constant thirst and headaches and nausea. And doctors said again, oh, no, no, it's it's just, you know, follow through. And then I started losing weight. And from the time I started with the flu to two weeks later, when I was admitted to the hospital on December 13th, uh, 1991, um, my grandmother had said that it was, she thought it was diabetes. Um, so they took me to the emergency room. Um, I, I had been vomiting nonstop and I had lost about 23 pounds. And for a six-year-old, that's pretty significant. Um, 
and uh, my blood sugar was ridiculously high. Um, I don't remember what my diagnosing A1C was because I was really little, but I remember that the blood sugar was 1,537. They said that if I wouldn't have gotten to the hospital within the next 12 hours, I wouldn't have made it. Um, And I was in the hospital for a week. And um, it was really amazing to me because the nursing staff on the unit was wonderful. And along with the encouragement of my parents, they made sure that I could give my own injections uh, before I left the hospital and check my own blood sugars and be prepared to do this at school. So time goes on and I was on those injections for quite a while. Um, quote unquote, managing mostly myself, um, lying because everybody has perfect blood sugars when you're a kid, because we think we know everything and we don't actually eat the junk food when we have an entire, you know, cardboard box under the bed of empty candy wrappers. Um, I would, if my sugar was 354, I would change the three out to a one and Hey mom, I'm 154. And we dose for that and go on with the day. And, um, the doctor kept saying, I, I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know what to do because your A1C is just constantly ridiculously high. And um, even when I started eating right and, you know, trying to monitor my blood sugars, I had damaged my body so much already by the age of, of 13 that I was highly insulin resistant now. And my body was rejecting the insulin that I would take. Um, and the doctor said, well, you're, you're, you've got to be eating bad things. And, you know, we want to closely monitor you to make sure, you know, under observation in the hospital, you know, to see exactly what's going on to figure this out. And after two weeks at a local children's hospital, the doctor looked at my mom and said, ah, yeah. She's a horse of a different color, and I don't know what to do with her. We counted her carbs. We gave her exact doses, and nothing's bringing her sugars down. So they tried putting me on an insulin pump, and I was on my Medtronic pump for from when I was 15 until, um, let's see here, about nine years ago. And... Um, through that time, I, you know, got older and right out of high school, I ended up getting pregnant and sugar's really high when getting pregnant is not a very good thing. Um, it's not healthy for the baby. It's not healthy for the mom or development. And, um, I gave birth to my incredible son, um, seven and a half weeks early and, uh, he was six pounds, 12 and a half ounces. Um, which is a normal size baby, if maybe a week overdue. Um, And they said, you know, he he barely made it when he was born, Um, but he pulled through and and he kept me pushing forward. Um, And through all of my my younger years going through all of this, I was dealing with severe depression and anxiety because I didn't fit in with anybody. You know, I couldn't go to those things that everybody else my age was doing because 
we had to monitor my sugar so closely because even if I ate healthy, my sugars were going to be dangerously high. And um, I ended up moving forward with, with my life, but keep trying to do the best I could. And I went to college and got two degrees, in, one in elementary ed and one in special education. And I was teaching for a while and raising my son and got married. Um, and through my marriage, I started drinking quite a bit of alcohol. Um, my husband at the time was an alcoholic and we, I decided that I, I deserved better for myself. And, you know, I, I wanted what was healthy for my son and I, so I had filed for a divorce after four years of marriage and, um, the end I remember that was 2012 and I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was 27 and um, I had gone for, a, in February, I had gone for an, my uh, yearly retinology appointment to get my, my eyes checked for diabetic retinopathy and there was nothing. And he, the doctor was so excited because he said, you know, this is great, you know, with how out of control your diabetes is, you know, the fact that you don't have any retinopathy is a miracle. And three months later, while I was at work one day driving a client in the work van, I noticed I had a, I thought it was a worm moving around in my my right eye and I flipped the lid. I mean, imagine you're driving and all of a sudden you see this thing moving and no matter where you turn your head, it's not going anywhere. It's stuck in there. So I called my, my mom and she laughed at me and hung up at first because she's like, you don't have a worm in your eye. And um, she was right, even though at the time I, I was convinced otherwise. And I got into the doctor that afternoon and I can hear the retinologist right now. And he said, you have such severe retinopathy that if you don't start treatments today, you'll be blind by the end of the month. And that day was April 27th, 2012. And I went, five days. I've got five days to live. Oh, I started treatment that day. And um, by June 24th, I was completely blind in my right eye. And September 12th, 2012, I lost the remaining sight in my left eye. Um, since then, I've, I've gone through over 37,000 rounds of laser therapy. Um, I've had four retinal reattachments and vitreoectomies in each eye. And have also had cataracts removed several times. And now I'm dealing with severe glaucoma in, in both the eyes, uh, which all affects my diabetes. Um, but I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. So I ended up finalizing my divorce that year in 2012. But when I went blind, I lost my job. Um, I couldn't drive, obviously, so I had to sell my car. Well, now I have no income, and my savings had been deteriorated from um, 
my divorce. So I thought my life was over. And I was like, there's no way that I can survive as a single mom. No job, no sight. I don't know how to do anything really without my sight. And I have such bad neuropathy in my hands from complications of my diabetes that um, I can't learn Braille. And then I met this amazing woman named Debbie Rozier. Um, I had called the local center for independent living from the field I worked in. I, I was familiar with, with um, center for independent living and what they did. I ended up talking to Debbie. Well, I shouldn't say that. I cried and screamed and swore at Debbie for quite a while. And You don't understand unless you're going through it. You know, I'm totally blind and a type one diabetic. And, I, and after Debbie listened to me go on and on for about 45 minutes, she said, you know, I know it's going to be hard to hear this, but it's going to be OK. And then I went off again. Oh, well, you don't understand. No, and she cut me off and she said, I, I very calmly, I, <laughs> actually it makes me laugh thinking about it now. She's like, no, really, you'll be okay. It's all going to be okay because I'm blind too. And I was like, it was like being wrapped in a warm hug of rainbows and marshmallows and fluff. It, it was, it was very comforting. And, um, Debbie changed my life. She got me services set up to teach me orientation and mobility, to teach me how to do vocational tech at home. I was given a computer with JAWS and trained on how to use it. And I was so eager to learn that I decided, well, I'm not going to sit around and not do anything for the rest of my life. I need to be a role model for my son. He saved my life numerous times. You know, I need to be here for him. And I decided I wanted to go back to school. So I did. Um, I had been introduced to a gentleman by my brother at the time. And this gentleman was much older than I was um, by 34 years. And his name was Remy. And Remy started spending time with me and helping me with appointments and helping me go back and forth to the college bookstore and to classes on campus with my guide dog. And I, surprisingly, we fell in love and very quickly. And um, we were together for eight years. But in that time, I went back to school with his encouragement and I got a bachelor's degree in psychology. And then I was accepted into graduate school and I was going to start off uh, going in for a master's in counseling. And um, I was so excited. And that's when COVID had hit. And my diabetes took a real turn at that point. And um, my A1C was up to 149 and Remy had taken me to an endocrinology appointment. They said, you know what? You need to go on a pump. And I said, but it's not accessible. How am I going to do that? And they said, do you want to live or do you want to figure out a way to make it happen? And I said, well, well I'd like to live. So I guess I need to figure out a way to have this happen. So Remy also became not only my husband, but my caregiver. Um, 
doing all of the changing of my insulin pump and my sensors so that I could try to keep living my life as my body was deteriorating from within. Um, from the diabetes, I have countless health issues, um, digestive issues, um, chronic fatigue and arthritis issues. Uh, and my, my body is not very friendly most of the time. In addition to, to the, all of that, you know, I needed to take care of myself because again, I needed to be there for my son and I wanted to grow old with this man that I love. And, um, so Remy got trained on how to use my insulin pump and became an excellent advocate for me and my needs as well. And um, in a matter of six months from going on a pump, which I'm on the tandem Slimex 2 running control IQ with um, a continuous glucose Dexcom sensor, my A1C went from 14.9 down to 4.9 in six months with making no other changes. And I lost 60 pounds and I was feeling much, much better. Um, and then round two of COVID hit Remy and I and round three of COVID hit and then round four of COVID hit. And over those months, we started both Remy and I were so fatigued. We spent most days in bed, but my A1C was good, folks. That's impressive. Um, but you know, we, one day, you know, Rem wasn't really wasn't feeling well. So we sent him to the hospital coming home a week and a half later, finding out that he had terminal liver cancer and he died in my arms five days later. And I said to myself, well, I lost the love of my life, but I can't lose my life because I'm only 36 years old and I still have a whole life to live. And since then, I've accomplished so much and witnessed so much that's changing my life from our peer mentor program, which I chair and run, and also am a mentor and a mentee. Um, I, I became a master life coach three times over and do guided meditation sessions. And I wrote my first book and got a book published and watched my son graduate from high school and developed a relationship with my parents that I've never had before. And I think back, and yes, all of this was caused by my diabetes, but if it weren't for the diabetes, I would have never gone blind. If I would have never gone blind, I wouldn't have traveled the path that I've traveled to get where I am today and to be a proud person who can stand confident in myself, knowing what I want, what I need and be independent to the best of my ability, not be ashamed to ask for help when I need it. And to be a proud mom of a, a college student who I've raised to be independent and also how to care for and advocate for people with diabetes and for blindness. Um, so I am so grateful to have gone through all of these challenges because they're just moving us higher up the, the ladder of life. You know, there's always that middle point where you've just got about got to that next rung in the ladder, but it's a hard push. But once you get there, it's, it's easy for a minute because you can just stand and breathe. And there's always going to be that next rung of the, the ladder of life to cross over. So I'll take each one. 
and uh, I'll do it with a smile on my face and continuing to encourage, empower, and support all of those around me, not only in their lives, but in our lives together and our journeys together through diabetes and sight loss. Thank you so much for having me on again this year. It's always wonderful to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for your story. All right. We have about two, uh, about 17 minutes, but I think if we go over just a little bit, I think, cause we're in the last session, uh, we, sh we should ask our host and our streamer if, if they might be willing to stick around for maybe five or, or six minutes after the normal closing time. Would that be acceptable? I'm fine with it. Herbie? Okay. Um, well, uh, last but not least, we want to hear from Sugar. And uh, Sugar has an amazing story too. And she is uh, someone that really is a, a light, just like all the rest of you are, uh, who really goes above and beyond and sends out, uh, you know, cards for, for people who are um, needing a, a bit of an angel on their shoulder. And, uh, and, and she does that well. So let's hear from Sugar and hear her story. Sugar? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Sugar Lopez. And first, I want to thank everyone for the opportunity to tell a little bit of our story. Um, and my journey with diabetes and blindness. I was diagnosed at the age of 12 with juvenile diabetes, which is now called type 1. And coming from my background, we didn't know much about diabetes or, you know, I didn't get educated. And I always say education now was nothing like back then. Um, so I started you know, with the insulin and the meals and um, going through many years, I think it was like five or six years of taking the insulin, you know, up to 10 times a day and nothing was happening. My blood sugars were always over 500. Um, we couldn't lower it down. And I was always in the hospital every two weeks or so, so much that when I left, the nurses would say, well, we'll see you in two weeks. We have your bed ready. Um I didn't know what was going on. And uh, I am just so blessed. I feel blessed because, number one, my parents, my father's a pastor and uh, is still pastoring. And I just want to say hello to them because they're listening to us now. And for me, that's a great blessing because of everything that I've been through. Um, so at the age of 12, you know, I had to learn how to inject myself and how to uh, eat the proper meals and just go through what a diabetic goes through and nothing was happening. Um, it wasn't till I moved over to La Melinda University where they told me, why are you taking this insulin? It's not even on the shelf anymore. It's not working. Um, so we switched over to the insulin that did work and I got a lot better. Um, and I, and I did go through a lot of, um, the ketone acidosis, the ketone acidosis. And I remember at the age of 14 or 15, um, I was so bad that they basically told my family I wasn't going to make it. Um, I don't remember much about that time, but I know that it was God in prayers that 
helped me go through it and I survived that. Um, I got better after that and I did spend a lot of time in the hospitals and dealing with high blood sugars and um, it was just, it was um, so, so crazy. Um, years went later and I finished, you know, my high school. They told me when I was in high school that I should probably not walk with my class because I had missed a lot of days and my diabetes were out of control. But um, I did walk with my class and I did graduate. I went on to college and um, had to drop out due to high blood sugars again and um, that was a really disappointment um, but later I did get my education in psychology and counseling so I was grateful for that um, we moved to another city because of uh, my dad pastoring and I was doing really well there and my diabetes was in control and I was eating right and I thought everything was okay. Um, and then I happened to meet my, who now is my husband. And um, I, I told him, you know, I'm a diabetic and these are complications that could happen. And the reason why I knew complications was because I did research on it. As a 12 year old, they never told me what the complications could be, what could happen. And so um, in 1995, we got married and my father married us and uh, life was good. Um, and then I start, I was working at a mortuary and cemetery business and um, I started to see what they call floaters in my eyes. And so I was driving so much that I could not see the white lines on the freeway. And this is in, you know, in Riverside, Los Angeles. And um, I was just following the leader. Um, Stoplights, I knew that the stoplights was red, yellow, and green, but I couldn't actually see the color. I just knew that the shadow was on the top. It was a stop. And, you know, the bottom was green. And so I followed, followed the leader with those cars and... Um, through all this time, funny, it's not funny, but I think about it now is I never told anybody in my family that I was driving and not being able to see um, the lanes in between. I would just follow the cars. Um, I was working one time and I couldn't see the numbers on the on the computer. And so I told my boss and she bought me a, a magnification for the computer and it wasn't working. So I went to see my doctor and they said, oh, a few laser um, procedures will help you. So I went through laser work and my eyes and treatments. And I finally said I couldn't see um, clearly I could see, I could see okay, but I couldn't see details. And um, I had no depth perception. So I didn't know when the sidewalks would end or if it was just leveled. And um, I went to go see an ophthalmologist. And uh, she told me I had diabetes retinopathy, where my, it was, my retinas were detaching. So after several 
after several surgeries, um, in a matter of two or three months, my sight was taken from me completely. And this is two years after I had got married. So it was pretty hard at first. Um, and then they wanted to send me to the Braille Institute for the Blind in Los Angeles. But I, I had just lost my sight and I couldn't leave my husband. Um, in 1988, uh, I'm sorry, 1987, um, I got married in 1995. In 1998, we got pregnant where they told me I could never have a baby because of the diabetes and the month, I developed chronic kidney disease, which I didn't know what it was since I was never told I could have that or get that. Um, and through the whole entire time, they told me I had to abort because it baby wasn't going to be normal and it was dangerous. And so I, I said no, because that was a gift from, from God and I wasn't going to let that go. Um, so baby Daniel was born um, but do because he was a preemie and uh, he was with us just for a few hours. And then he uh, went to sleep and went to heaven. Uh, I, I almost uh, lost my life during that time as well, because in the middle of the surgery, the doctors came out and told my husband that he had to sign a release form. There was a 50-50 chance. And I remember telling him before the surgery that if he had to choose to choose the baby and my husband turned to me and said, we can always have another baby through adoption or however it may be, but I can only have one of you. So um, he signed it, but we're not expecting that in the middle of an during the surgery, he had to come out and had, tell the, my husband that he had to sign another form for me because I wasn't going to make it. Um, but through prayers, again, and my faith in God and just the goodness of God's grace and mercy, I made it. And um, uh, we continued. And they told me at that time that you would, I, they told me I would need some, I would need dialysis. And I refused dialysis for three years because I knew that God had something for me. And the doctors would ask me, um, what can we do for you to allow us to put you on dialysis? And I remember very clearly telling them, as long as God gives me breath to say no, then the answer is no. You can do what you want with me after I'm on the ground and I can't speak, you know, then I'm yours. Um, and that was hard, you know, that was really hard for the family. I, I was still on insulin. And during that time, you know, sugar's dropping and going high and dealing with the, with the loss of a child and the loss of my sight because I had just lost the sight a year before. Um, I remember telling my husband when I got home, that I I loved him so much that I would let him go because I didn't want nor need a husband out of obligation. And I didn't want to feel like a burden to anyone. Um, 
and he just went down on one knee and he re- reminded me of our vows and we're here 28 years later so i am very thankful and blessed about that um going back to after i had the baby um we went home and had the service and uh I didn't think that on our third anniversary, we were putting our baby down to rest. Um, But that's what happened. And uh, it was very hard for both of us. But we, I I have to say that it was our faith. It was God's hand watching us and who allowed us to continue uh, to be strong. Um, I remember going to the doctor and he telling me, um, you're going to have to need a kidney transplant or you get on dialysis. And uh, he said, you know, um, it's better if you get a live donor. And so I said, okay. And by then I, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't. Do, I, was sit, I was sleeping sitting on my husband's lap because I got to the point where my organs were shutting down. I could hear the liquid in my lungs as a, if I try to lay down. Um, and it happened that it was, a, it was a Sunday night where an uncle called me and he said, or he called my mom, I don't remember, but he said that he had a dream and God told him that he was going to have to donate a kidney to me. And um, on December 3rd of 2001, I had my kidney transplant. And uh, in 2003, on Mother's Day, I had a pancreas transplant. And so I was relieved from diabetes for about 20 years. Um, And now I am back on the waiting list for five years now for a kidney. Um, We decided not to do the pancreas again, only because there's just too many complications. It would be my second one. And I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that, you know. Um, But I think we all have our stories and we are walking in this journey of diabetes together. Um, I am grateful to be a part of ACBDA as a Sunshine Committee Chair. And it is just what it is, but it sounds like I like to encourage people. And even though we're going through the same walk of life, but we all come from different walks of life. We all have to stay positive and stay encouraged. And there's a lot to my story, but we don't have the time. (laughs) Um, But I just want to say, though, through every through everything that I've been through, if it wasn't for God, it wasn't for my support, for my family, my husband, my parents, um, I don't think I, I wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't be here. Um, I am currently on dialysis. Uh, I'm on dialysis for three years now. And it's very hard to be on dialysis, uh, to stay positive a lot. Um but I see dialysis as that second opportunity of life. Um, God still has me here because he's not done with me yet. And that's my, my belief. Um, 
I am very grateful for my husband because he goes through a lot with me. And um, my parents, who have always been there for me, supported me and loved me unconditionally. Um, and every, all my friends on the ACBDA just, you know, they're so, they're just so good to me. They show me a lot of support. And I just want to thank everybody for the opportunity that you've given me to share a little bit about myself. Um, just be there, hang in there and stay strong because you're not alone in this walk that we live in, in the journey of diabetes. Wow. Well, well, we've heard just some amazing stories and we're going to have to have all four of you back so that we can ask all of you more questions on a community call. So hopefully we can get that scheduled and figure out how we can get that done. Cause I've got all kinds of questions about uh, each one of you, uh, both fun questions and, and life questions, all kinds of interesting things. So Thank you so, so much to the four of you for, for being here. Thank you for uh, everyone for coming and listening. We're sorry that we didn't have time for any questions uh, today, but we'll definitely try to get uh, all of us back together again during a, a community call where we can definitely dive a little bit deeper. Monica, can you give us the closing CE code, please? Yes, I can. The closing CEU code is 72101. Again, the closing CEU code is 72101. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. And all of the presentations that we've heard today as part of ACBDA will be up on the acbda.org website once they're edited. And uh, they'll be part of the convention podcast feed as well as the ACBDA podcast. So stay tuned for that. And uh, again, Thank you for participating. We'll see everyone soon.